Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. Here with me, as always, is Brian Gottlieb, and we have a lot to talk about on today's show. But first and foremost, we got the very, very unfortunate news a few days ago that a mutual friend of ours, Alex Stretton, had passed away. And Brian, you were a little bit closer to Alex than he and I were, and I know that you wanted to say a few things, so I'm just going to give you the floor. I appreciate that, Jerry. This is a horrible thing to be starting our podcast off with, but I definitely wanted to say something because I know Alex loved our podcast. Uh, He was definitely a regular listener. He was a patron. Yeah, I've known Alex for over a decade now. He was from basically the same hometown as me. He's from the Albany area. So I, I knew Alex when he was maybe like 13 and his parents would drop him off at the local store and he was always there. He lived and breathed magic, like maybe to a problematic extent. He he just loved the game and he wanted so badly to be great at it and worked so hard and consumed every piece of information he could possibly get his hands on that culminated with him actually just playing his first pro tour. He played Barcelona. And when I tell you there is nothing that Alex wanted more than to play a pro tour, I'm not exaggerating. It meant everything to him. And he got to achieve that goal. He won a PTQ playing Judith, actually, Red Black Sacrifice style deck and went to Barcelona and put up a decent result. I believe Min cashed seemed pretty okay with that outcome. And then uh, just a few days later, he took his own life. And Alex had been battling his demons for a very long time. And if you were close to Alex, you certainly knew that. And it is just truly, truly heartbreaking to have to say goodbye to him. He was a complicated person. He could be a difficult person at times, but he was just a good person. And Alex would ask a lot of you, but it wasn't from a place of greed or wanting to leverage his friendship with you. He just wanted to learn. He wanted to know as much as he possibly could about the game, about life. He used to call me and we'd talk about you know, him potentially going to law school and what he wanted to do in college. And he just, he sought out information like it was his job. He tried to inform himself to the greatest degree. He was always so thankful for any time you gave him. I spoke on Twitter. I remember when Alex left the Albany area, he moved to Tampa. And so there's two local communities that are definitely grieving right now. But when he moved, he sent me a postcard, which is like a weird thing to do. You don't see postcards these days, maybe from your older relatives when they're on vacation or something. But he wrote me this nice note on the back thanking me for all the time I had spent talking with him about magic and about his career and his life and how much it meant to him. And that gesture really sums up Alex very well. He was an incredibly kind, thoughtful person. Really, really hurts to have lost him. I'm going to be streaming. This will be up after the stream. Tomorrow I'm doing a charity stream in Alex's memory, and we're hoping to raise a lot of money for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention in our Discord, Jeff Pika asked the question, why it hurts so much more, it seems, when you lose someone to suicide rather than like just a traumatic incident. And for me, I 
equate it to a played game of magic where when you lose a game of magic and you lose to variance or you lose to a bad matchup, you, at least when you've been around the game for a long time, you learn to let that go and not to focus on that. But the games where you misplay, they stay with you for a very long time. And I think I find myself wondering if I misplayed with Alex and if there was something more I could have done. And I know I'm not alone in that sentiment. I've talked to so many people over the last few days who are feeling that way right now. And it's a really, really tough feeling to shake. I urge everyone, if there's someone you think might need help, do whatever you can. Call them, take their calls, reach out to them, reach out to their parents. Uh, if you and a group of your friends are concerned about someone, come together with that group of friends, figure out something to do and do your best not to leave yourself with the question of, could I have done more? Because it really, really hurts right now. I'm sorry, this is a crappy way to start off the podcast, but it's a crappy situation. I love you, Alex. I miss you. I hope that you're at peace now. And I hope you know how much you meant to so many people. And that's all I want to say about it. Yeah, that's that's basically perfect. Uh <laughs> I'm not sure how much I can add to that, but I I only met Alex somewhat recently, and I, I think we played like round one and round two of a classic, and he brought up your name as a mutual friend, which is a thing that we like kind of bonded over and got to start talking about. And you are absolutely right that, you know, just immediately he was just like, you know, I, I want to get on the pro tour. Like, do you have any tips or ideas or like, you know, what, what can I be doing differently? What can I be doing better? You know? And I, I really appreciate that attitude, which is basically how he and I became friends, you know, and definitely everything you said about having just a massive amount of people reeling from this is absolutely true. And I'm sure if you're on magic Twitter, you've seen some of this already. So no, thank you for the kind words and for doing the stream and raising money and all that good stuff. Like he would be proud of you. I appreciate that sentiment. I think one more thing I want to say too, is I've talked to a lot of people who for whatever reason in the situation too, have felt either guilty about their grief or, and I've also seen people suggesting that certain people don't, they shouldn't have access to the type of grief they're feeling right now. I think that's crazy. And I've seen so many people who are like, I want to say something, but I feel like I'm making this about me. But the only way you can experience, you can sum up your experiences with someone is through what you lived with them. And I think, you know, sharing the good times you had with Alex, uh, sharing your stories about Alex, everyone gets to do that. Everyone gets to grieve however they see fit. Don't let anyone make you feel like you don't have a right to share your memories of Alex or tell stories about Alex. I think everyone is devastated right now. And I know, I think people are saying a lot of things in pain and anger, and we all have a lot of pain and anger about this, but you all have access to grief, however it hits you. And I I hope you can do whatever it takes to find peace in a very tough time, play games in memory of Alex, use his favorite decks, whatever you have to do to make some sense of this, you should have access to. Yeah, absolutely. As, as awkward as it is to try and transition away from that and into 
magic strategy stuff, I'm I'm going to try. So you won fandom last week. I did. You, I, you are, I was the the big winner. You are playing again this week. Yeah, as uh, a top four finisher, you get invited to fandom again. And thank you to the people at fandom for inviting me, by the way. Fantastic tournament. I had a great time. Turns out I don't hate streaming. I hate streaming when there's no stakes. That's really the differentiating point. And playing that tournament with some pretty high stakes was a lot of fun last week. Interesting. Uh, How did you feel getting to the top four? I know you made a tweet about this when it was you and three MPL members. So (laughs) my my tweet was somewhat tongue in cheek. Like, oh, obviously I'm the favorite. But at the same time, I've played against plenty of MPL members in my day. And I've beaten plenty of them. And I've lost to them plenty as well. They're all excellent magic players, but they are human. And I was very comfortable playing with three other MPL players. I thought as far as matchups went, my matchups were fine. Played Gregor's in the top four in Escape Chef Mirror. And our our decks were near identical, uh, which is funny because all of our conclusions were independent. And our Escape Chef list looked a little bit different from what the typical Escape Chef list was at the time, although now it feels like deputy detention and things like that are absolutely standard. But there was no real deck building edge there, and it felt like we were kind of playing a crapshoot in game one, and then game two was pretty interesting. I actually think all of the top four games were interesting. My game against Marcio was really interesting as well. Uh, but as far as like intimidation or worrying about whether I could win facing three MPLers, there was none of that going on. So you're not scared whenever we play each other? No, I am not scared to play you, Gerald. I'm sorry. Damn it. Damn it. <laughs> you, you do not have that edge against me. All right. So what are you playing this week? I got a weird one and I don't, I'm kind of on a lark here. It's not just like I grab this deck at random. I have some reasons to believe the deck is particularly strong right now, but it's not a deck scene much, if any, play. I am playing Jeskai Super Friends, Jeskai Planeswalkers, however you want to state the name. And uh, there's a couple of reasons for that. The first is basically I was looking for a deck that could really effectively target vampires. I thought Jeskai Planeswalkers with all of its sweepers, uh, I have access to seven sweepers actually in my list, had a completely fine matchup against vampires. There's some life gain there as well to even negate the reach of Soren. You have means to attack Soren and Sarkin. So that matchup seemed to line up really well for me. And then... I just felt I needed to get the scape shift matchup to a reasonable place. I think I've done so with some sideboard tech. One card, which was provided by you, which I really love, but I have two blood suns, an alpine moon, and a fall of the Thran. There it is. Yeah, that card's cool. And I could see that having a very big impact in the matchup. And your clock is fine as Jeskai Walkers. You can fight the Teferi Wars. You have access to sweepers if they start getting out of hand with zombies. So I I think that matchup is going to prove to be fine as well. And then the last deck, which kind of only came out to my radar late, but I also like my positioning against is uh, Andrew Cuneo's deck, the blue-black control deck that he seems to be very effectively farming vampires with. I don't know if people are going to pick that deck up, but if they do, I like having a bunch of Planeswalkers against that deck as well. Yeah, I'm I'm less happy about your deck choice this week than last week. Okay, that's fine. You don't have to be 100% on board. You see where I'm coming from, though, right? Where do you see the flaw in my plan? Let me put you to the test there. So 
I think that you are grossly overstating the vampires matchup. Like sweepers alone are not going to beat the deck with like legions landing, Adana Vanguard, Soren into champion, etc. Sure. Like I, I'm not, I'm not sure like how much you've actually like, you know, played with your deck or played that matchup specifically or whatever. But I don't know. To, to me, it seemed way more important to just like spot remove the important things and just kind of have some other way to deal with the crappy creatures. You know, four shock, make- two baffling end, not doing anything for you. Two more baffling end in the sideboard. Yeah. It, okay. That's that stuff is fine. Right. But mm-hmm. then you still have like the sword and champion problem. Like uh, how much white mana do you have? Do you have uh, the, the white sideboard hoser devout decree? I think it's called. No, I do not have devout decree. Did you submit your deck list already? I did. Mm, tilt. Yeah, I think you can make a good case for a devout deg- decree over the additional copies of Baffling End I have in the sideboard. That's interesting. Yeah, I, so I played a decent amount of Esper Hero, and I'm writing about it this week. And the move to devout decree made me so happy because it solved so many problems. Mm. Mo- mostly against vampires. We're like, I had a Noxious Grasp in my sideboard. Is that the card? Yeah, the, the one, black card. Yeah, 1B, whatever. Just like the majority of their things that I care about are black, not white, you know? Right. So I I was really happy when I made that shift over. It also helped against the Jun Dinosaurs deck a little bit. I'm not sure how popular that that deck is still. But uh, yeah, the the decree was really nice. And from the more controly side of things, it felt like it shored up a lot of issues, which was mainly Soren. Yeah, I am just hard regretting not having that card now, having this conversation over the baffling ends I have in my sideboard, because basically all the same spots, I'd be 100% happy boarding in that card instead. Yeah, I mean, except, except against a Danto or whatever, but you maybe have enough ways to actually break that card. I don't know. I have binding. I mean, that's a little slow, but. Yeah, you could find other ways to answer Adanto. Yeah, I, I guess that is the contentious part. And my experience with Scapeshift was such that I grew to have a very high opinion of Baffling End because of how key it was in beating the Vampire's decks. And again, that was a piece of technology that I think most people didn't have a few weeks ago in Scapeshift. And playing against Marcio, it made a very large difference. I also beat Vampires in my round of eight as well matchup, and it was indispensable there as well. Great. So we've spent 16 minutes on this podcast not talking about our actual podcast topic. So you want to do that? We we probably should do that because it's a good topic. It's a real good topic. And I think if you've been clamoring for a return to a little bit more theoretical work and some evergreen content, you should be really happy about this episode. And if that is the case, I'm telling you now, you have to be vocal about it because most data and trends in magic content creation very wholeheartedly point to the fact that people are a little turned off by the crunchiness of all this. They want deck lists and metagame discussions and all that kind of stuff. And that's how we ended up in that kind of format where we quite often talked about the metagame as it stood or a specific deck it's rare these days that we go off the beaten path and speak more abstractly. So if you like this, you got to let us know. You got to be vocal about it. Share the episode with your friends, all that good stuff. Yeah, I was I was about to say the exact same thing. Tell us specifically. Because mm-hmm. we'll listen. 100% we'll listen. Share it with your friends. And if you think that this sucks or the subject matter is beneath you, it didn't teach you anything, I find that hard to believe. But, you know, let us know that stuff too. Sure thing. So this whole thing 
stems from basically the simplest scenario in all of magic that you could possibly think of, which is it's turn two. Your opponent has played a turn, uh, a turn two, two, two. You've played a turn two, two, two on their turn. They attack. Do you block? Why, why does this matter? Because there are so many things that go into this decision and we take them all for granted. So on its face, this is a bad question, right? If I just walked up to you and said, Jerry, here's the situation. Do you block? It's a bad question. And it's not something you can meaningfully give me any input towards. No context. Exactly. And oftentimes when I'm being presented with questions, I will say something to that effect. I'm like, I don't think this is a meaningful question given the context. You need a bunch more behind it. And I kind of naysay the question. But the truth is that if you let yourself answer it devoid of context, you force yourself to go in other directions. And if you're able to answer this question effectively minus all context, when you actually have context, your answer becomes that much more powerful and that much more apt to be accurate. And a lot of times in answering this question, I would say something like it's instinct. Like I just instinctually know whether to block or not. And that's nonsense. There's no such thing as magic instincts. We weren't, you know, primitively playing magic and have these deeply ingrained instincts as to when we need to make these blocks. It's about experience and about a hundred other factors that I'm considering before I make that block, but I don't maybe like directly consider them. Maybe they're so ingrained at this point that I'm automatically doing it before anything even happens. But we wanted to paint a very clear picture of exactly what those factors are. And there's a lot of them, quite frankly. This seems so simple, but there's so much we can talk about. Well, I think a lot of it comes from muscle memory after having been playing the format for a decent amount. And sure. at that point, you already know things like you know what your game plan is or whatever, right? So you know what what to do in that decision. And then you can save your brain power for like, you know, the more mathy stuff where it comes down to like, you know, the, the last two combat steps of the game or whatever, you know, but right. I look at this as a good way to figure out why context matters and maybe teach why context matters and what you should be looking for when you actually do make these decisions. And it's also certainly possible to have that, ingrained muscle memory like that subconscious stuff uh learned after playing a hundred matches of a format or something that ends up being wrong you know uh it's it's possible to do those things make the wrong decision but like have a, a reason in mind for why you made those decisions is just off so it is also just very important to be double checking your work and making sure that you are doing things for the right reasons I think that's a great point. And I also want to acknowledge the fact that we have listeners of all different experience levels too. And I think there are people who, when presented with some of these things we're talking about considering, will have legitimately never thought of those things before. And this can be a real level up moment for them uh, as something new to add to their repertoire when they're playing games of limited. Right. So in the the scope of context, we're, we're going to start broad and work smaller. So uh, you you go ahead and start. Yeah, basically the way I want to have this conversation is that I'm going to present a point to you that I would consider, and then I want you to talk a bit about why you think that point is important or why it isn't maybe. You're certainly free to disagree with me, and how the answers to these things we're considering will inform your decision 
whether to make the block or not. And I also want to just reinforce, in general, we're talking about limited as we move through this discussion, but all of this applies to constructed as well. It's not like it becomes irrelevant at that point. It's just the answers are probably going to be a little bit more rehearsed than they are in the limited context. One of the reasons why I love limited so much is that the answers often do feel less rehearsed. I, I mean, a little bit. I, I think the, the thing that loses me the most for this being about constructed is your opponent played a grizzly bear you played a grizzly bear sure that doesn't happen often but a lot of the stuff that we're talking about or going to be talking about it's it's very applicable to constructed and i think it won't be that difficult for you know people to see it in terms of constructed anyway just like maybe maybe level up the creatures to three threes instead i don't know (laughs) sure that makes sense or like Uh, you you each played a turn one two two (laughs) Now these are more realistic scenarios. Yes. Uh, Okay. Like we said, we're starting broad. We're going to get smaller than that. And so this first range of considerations I want to present to you, I find them to be about the format at large, the limited format that we're presently playing. And the first questions I want to think about are, is this format aggressive? And how long do the games go on average? So... The what the format looks like will generally be a good indicator of what your deck looks like and what your deck is trying to do. So say a format is aggressive, something like Zendikar, for example, in general, your deck is likely going to be aggressive. Also, there are some corner cases where you can play a more controlling deck, but it also helps inform what your opponent is probably trying to do. Exactly right. And Zendikar is so unique in that it often felt like if you were blocking, you were losing. That was the general read around Zendikar. A lot of that had to do with landfall and just the sizing of creatures. I mean, it was a very, very aggressive limited format. And where things were pushed to hyper aggression, you just never wanted to make blocks. You were super incentivized to try and get on the battlefield yourself and figure out a way to leverage your battlefield presence to have your own aggressive game plan start doing its thing. Yeah, and all the cards were kind of built with that in mind. Things like Steplings, Plate of GOP, like these things don't block very well. Mm-hmm. And even the equipment, I forget the the one mana equipment that was like- Ad- Adventurer's Gear, I think. Yeah, that one. I played that one in Constructed, so I should remember the name of that card, but I don't. Uh, it's, it's just stuff like that where it's like, if your opponent's deck isn't aggressive, well, I mean- you know, you're you're already in a pretty good spot, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that incentivizes more non-blocks in this scenario. I want to distinguish between the two questions and ask if there's a difference. Because at first I asked, is the format aggressive? Second, I asked, how long do games go on average? Is there a difference between those two questions? I, I think there is because it's it's possible that for the first five turns of the game, you're not dealing each other a lot of damage, but then maybe on like turn eight or something, because there are a lot of overruns or fireballs or Mm. dirge of dread type things. Like it's possible that games can just end around then. So, you know, those things might determine whether or not you're trying to preserve your life total or, uh, you know, because you're scared of one of those cards or on the flip side, like you have one of those cards and you want to use it to great effect. And the two, two is more valuable as a thing that can provide damage output at that point. Yeah, certainly sizing of creatures makes it so that a format can be aggressive and still have longer games than other aggressive formats. Uh, And I think as games get longer, 
you're on average as games get longer, you're less in, or you're more incentivized to block at that point because you're likely to have more resources. Yeah, and I mean a good way to look at this in general for specifically like your opponents attacking with a creature should you block is how much value whatever that means is your 2-2 worth and in a scenario where it's a high toughness format for example like the 2-2 probably doesn't have a lot of a whole lot of value because it's going to get brick walled at some point but you know maybe you have a lot of ways to actually make the body relevant and uh yeah a lot of that certainly depends on the context of the format yeah i think creature sizing is another huge part of this whole aggressive equation like are there a bunch of two threes in the format are there a bunch of two fours in the format is it just a hundred percent certainty that at some point this body is going to be invalidated and this might be the best chance to get a little bit of value from it because as we know opposing two twos could upgrade throughout the game of course your two two might upgrade as well and all of this is going to come back into question when we talk about your specific game plan yeah, I mean, uh, another thing is if there are a lot of two threes and a lot of two fours and the games go on very long, does it really matter if you take this two damage because Good you might question. play a, you might play a two three on the next turn or it's just very unlikely in general that the two points of damage is actually going to matter. But if the games are going long because there are board stalls and maybe there's not a lot of card advantage, not a lot of mana sinks, or maybe your deck is not built in such a way to maximize those things, it's possible that the extra two life you save here could give you a draw step later on down the line. So overall, there's there's just a ton of things that you need to consider between, you know, the the format, what it looks like, and everything that you're trying to do. Yeah, we're not even speaking about specific cards yet, and we've already got a host of things to consider. Next question I want to move on to, and this is about more specific cards, it's what are the available combat tricks? And I think this is about how hard can you be punished for your block here is essentially what you're asking by this question. Yeah, I, th- I think a lot of the time, if they are trading like a giant growth or you know, like a two mana plus two plus two or something like that a lo- for your grizzly bear, your card that doesn't have a lot of value, especially if you have like a two, three or a three, three, uh, you know, anything that can brick wall this two, two in your hand, that's just a huge trade for you. But if there are things like aggressive urge in the format, which is like two mana plus one plus one draw card, like if there's a thing where you get max punished for blocking and they just get to kill your two, two for free, like that is a thing that you need to consider too. Yeah. And I think it informs another aspect of this decision because there are tons of circumstances where you're pretty happy with your opponent wasting their third turn deploying a combat trick as opposed to a creature. That's a question you're going to have to ask yourself if you can bear that cost. But I, I think the quality of combat trick and something like aggressive urge existing points to the fact that you may not want to take the chance here. The equity gain from them using their mana on the specific turn is not likely to be worth the just hard card loss you're experiencing here to the cantrip pump effect. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. Like there, there are also these weird corner case scenarios where you have a six mana, like literally unbeatable card in your hand and you just need to buy time to get there and they could just show you the aggressive version. You would still block. Right. But it all matters. It's it's all context driven, and that's that's where we're gonna try and continue to get into. Mm-hmm. And along those same lines, I want to consider buffs from other 
creatures you may get. And I think this extends not only to typical like Lord effects, like Elvish champion that make your creatures actually bigger, but also the value of having multiple creatures on the battlefield, be it for some payoff card, like overrun, uh, some engine card, like demon of death's gate or something ridiculous like that. You have to ask, is there value to me keeping this creature on the battlefield as well? Right. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. And I think that overall, these are not things that people generally consider. I remember uh, early 2000s playing Kamigawa Block, which had a lot of Soul Shift, which is like a, a basically black mechanic, but had like a lot of white, some green, where if your thing died, you got to regrow something of a smaller casting cost. Mm-hmm. Are you about and to talk Adam Chambers right now? Are you going to go there? No, no. Uh, okay. Uh, I, I mean, I know that. Uh, yeah, he just went fully up the chain with Soul Shift every single time. But it was like right. my my opponent played some black two drop grizzly bear and attacked me, and I blocked, and then they Soul Shifted it back, you know. And I'm just like, why did I block on turn two? Like they're just going to get it back at some mm-hmm. point. That to me is like this weirdo kind of like sideways bonus for uh having. It's like the opposite, I guess. It's like bonus for having a creature in the graveyard rather than having a creature on the battlefield, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're going to get into graveyards as we move through uh, this list of things to consider for sure. But that's a great point. Something a little bit more broad right now. How much card advantage is present in the format overall? I think anytime you are able to pay mana for additional cards, it means that you are likely pretty favored in games that are going long, unless your deck is just mono air. But if you can pay mana to draw cards, you should probably do everything that you can to preserve your life total. And making trades like that, that are, you know, pretty reasonable, right? Like you you both invested two mana in a card, and uh, this is a thing that allows you to live another day, maybe has like, really long, far-reaching consequences where you get another turn to use all your mana with all of the cards that you've drawn, you know? So it's not even like you're getting an additional draw step out of the deal, but, like, you blocking this 2-2 is going to gain you, like, 10 mana down the line when you have a bunch of card advantage in your deck. I think that's huge. Can you think of circumstances where this breaks down a little bit because of the context of the format? I'm trying to think of, like, mechanics that were so card advantage heavy and so prevalent in a format that it actually forced you the other way where the aggro deck was apt to be able to successfully convert these resources as well. Something like, I mean, maybe there's a bit of it in Amonkhet where you're able to rebuy a bunch of your creatures from the graveyard, especially when they were upgrading a lot of the time. Well, it, it can certainly backfire where, yes, you can draft as many divinations or sifts uh, as you want, but the aggression in the format is just too good. So you don't, ha- you know, it's like Zendikar, right? It's like you could just draw as many cards as you want. My Steplinks are going to kill you. You don't have nearly enough relevant cards to interact with my my one mana two threes because the format just doesn't have them. Maybe not within like the last couple years or so, but certainly there was like a five year period before that where I thought that things like Divination were just not very good because a lot of the... Uh, good aggressive decks that you could have in, in limited formats were just way better than trying to sit back and draw cards and accumulate card advantage. Yeah, it feels like we've seen a bit of a swing back to the power of divination. I think of like 
10th edition limited, which is a really obscure format that probably not a lot of people have played, but I actually really liked for some sick reason uh, as a format where divinations were basically super powerful. I don't even know if actual divination is in that format, but blue card drawing in general was super powerful at that point in time. And then there was a lull where it seemed like not the best thing to be doing. If I'm thinking like shards of Alara error, it didn't seem particularly impactful, but I do think we're back to divination being meaningful once more. Yeah. I mean, any, anytime you have a format with things like mana war, it's like you, you know, they, they play a creature, you play a divination, they play a creature, you play a, a three, three to block their two twos. They mana war it hit you for four. Like you are dead. You are going to lose that game and your, your divination didn't really accomplish a whole lot. So you don't really have the tools to gain inevitability and like make sure that you are going to win if, if the game goes long because your opponent has a deck that just ensures the game doesn't go long. All right. Okay, let's move on to the next one here. This one's a little harder. I'm going to make you work for this one and talking about how this informs your decision whether or not to block. How good is mana fixing in the format? Well, if mana fixing is very good, I think that people are very likely to be trying to utilize that and get more power into their decks, which means that the games are likely just going to be going longer and you're, you're going to have to grind against a lot of very strong cards. And, you know, if you're just like a normal average two color deck, that's, that's probably not a good matchup for you. Yeah. I think there's two prongs to mana fixing informing this particular decision. The first being exactly what you said, the PowerPoint where creatures are just going to be better on average and your tutu is getting invalidated very quickly. The other thing is that when mana fixing is bad, the pace of the game can slow down because players are left with more dead cards in hand that they can't immediately deploy or they're just avoiding dead cards in general. But on the whole, the pace of the game is slowing down. And by playing inefficient tapped lands or you know really slow search spells to get additional basic lands onto the battlefield, all that stuff brings down the general pace where having that 2-2 present can matter a little bit more and you're more incentivized to pass on the block. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's certainly one of the scenarios where having a thing like a mana war can just completely cripple your opponent because they're already starting off kind of on a back foot potentially. Right. And yeah. if you like have to play a tap land on turn three, can't play your three drop and then get mana ward, you are going to lose. Next question. This is not as specific as it sounds, but I'm going to ask it as it's written anyway. The question is, is there a playable mind rot? I mean, the, the way I would look at it is, is your deck, your hand, everything like that, capable of fighting with very, very few resources? Like if you block and then get mind rotted, you have what, two land and four cards in hand or whatever? Like you don't have a lot of stuff to work with. It's possible that if you get mind rotted, you discard it you would want to discard like your five drop and your fifth land or something and just try and make this grizzly bear work for you because you're going to be short on resources. You might have to, you know, be the aggressor in this sort of game. I don't know. Yeah, I think that's right. The mind rock question points more to, is there resource denial? Is it possible that you're going to have to make a game plan without having access to all of your cards? And in that spot, I do think you are incentivized to pass on the block and make something out of your tutu if you're likely to have a resource-like game. 
Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that's a small consideration, but it definitely is a consideration. And I think that there are also just like decks and hands and scenarios that would be like, I mean, yeah, I'm going to be resource light, but it's still better for me to block. But I, I do think that that is something that you need to be considerate of. And that might actually just go back to more of like a deck building thing. If you're talking about like sealed or uh, building your draft deck and whether or not you should include like a seven drop or something, because maybe, you know, your most of your opponents are playing a mind rod or two and you just won't ever be able to get to cast that thing. God, I love talking about resource light scenarios. I think they actually lead to some of the most interesting points at magic. And I, I was dying to talk about this one particular point. I've had it actually at a few points in this document, but for whatever reason, I find myself drawn to it right now. And it's an older example. It's talking shards of Alara era Jund and the card Putrid Leech. And if you're not familiar with Putrid Leech, Putrid Leech was a green black 2-2 pay. Was it four life or two life? Pay two life. It gets plus two plus two. You can only do it once per turn. Correct. It's been a while since I've seen my friend Putrid Leech on the battlefield, but there was prevailing wisdom in the format that you never pumped your putrid leech into open red mana, specifically in the Jund mirror, because the punishment was lightning bolt. You would get your putrid le- leech lightning bolted, you would lose access to it, and you'd lose access to a valuable resource. I won so much in the Jund mirror by often pumping my putrid leeches into open red mana and getting the putrid leech lightning bolt because the other card that was one of the hallmarks of Jund was lightning and you were very happy to have an almost irrelevant lightning bolt out of your opponent's hand when you knew you could then blightening them and go into Bloodbraid elf and just cruise into the late game and it's something that i saw the best jun players do very often and middle of the road jun players do absolutely never they would never expose their putrid leech to lightning bolt and it was one of the breaking points of that matchup a hundred percent well check this out check this out Say you play Putrid Leech, they have open mana. On turn three or whenever you do this, you blightning them before combat. They discard two cards that are not Lightning Bolt, and now you still have 2-2 in play attacking them versus Lightning Bolt in hand. Isn't that effectively the same thing, except you have the 2-2 that's hitting them? I mean, it gives them an option to do something different. I, I will grant you that. But then you can, like, pump the Putrid Leech and whatever. Right. I- it's close. It's close. But you're you're you said it. You're denying them a choice by making the play in the opposite fashion and just letting them have that spot to go for the lightning bolt. Yes, absolutely. And giving your opponent a choice is dangerous. And I mean, we could even talk about this as far as uh, the opponent attacking you and offering you the trade, or you know, at least uh, as you see it, offering the trade. So yeah, I mean, it it is certainly dangerous if. Uh, like what? what's a good example of this where it's like they have a creature, they cast a creature, you let it resolve and then you edict them or whatever. Like you, you could have just killed the first creature. Right. And right. in this case, you're giving them a choice whether they want to kill the first or second creature. And right. the only way this is ever good is if you you want to kill the second creature, but you you give them the option to make a mistake. Yeah, I think you give them an option to make a mistake and you give them, you get more information from what their choice is. I mean, this assumes a lot. It assumes you're basically equally happy with either dying in this scenario, but you can 100% paint scenarios where it's correct to let it resolve, I believe. Yeah, it's it's just weird because 
in in theory, your opponent has more information than you do for when they are making their choice because they know the contents of their hand and their deck, whatever. And you could just make it clear cut that you are killing the first creature. And instead you let them choose which one of their creatures they want to keep. You know, it is, it is very weird. I've there. I think people like Paulo have said that this is like always wrong. And I, I disagree with this slightly because you are giving them an option to make a mistake, but most of the time, like 99% of the time, it's going to be the same for you. But yeah, I mean, there is the time, the very small chance where they sack the first creature or the second creature rather. And that is what they wanted to do. That is the thing that is most beneficial for them. And sometimes you get burned by it, but yeah. You know. Yeah. I think one of the things about rules and Matt, like I agree with Paulo's theorem in the abstract. One of the things though, about any hard and fast rule in magic is that you can find exceptions to it. And uh, yeah. There's, there's no strictly better. Right. 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 And I think that's what makes the game so interesting is that we could probably do a very similar episode on exactly that decision as well, where we could find a bunch of scenarios where you weren't actually casting the diabolic deed until the creature resolved. But that'll have to be a future show. We'll stick with this topic for the time being. And we'll move on to our next question here about yeah, our format at, lower, at large. And the question is just generally what's going on with the graveyard? Yeah, I, th- I think the the soul shift example is it basically encompasses this, but like there are there are other things too. With like Gravedigger is a big one, and if you have ever played a game of limited where you know your only four drop was a Gravedigger, you just want something to die. You know, even if you're like losing a little bit of tempo just by like trading off two twos or whatever. You know, you don't have as big of a board presence. Like you you are getting a card out of the deal. And that is certainly worth something. And if they don't block, they don't trade. You're not going to play your Gravedigger on force. You just have nothing to do. Uh, so, yeah, basically in, in Kamigawa, I learned to basically never trade with black decks because they they had ways to actually get around that. And there are some formats where trading with a certain color is just a bad proposition for you based on the cards that they have access to. And it's also one of the most powerful things you can do because they're banking on those cards to actually be good. Yeah, I think there's so many limited formats where you could talk about how blocking here is super punished by the graveyard-based mechanic. There's Delve, obviously. There's Threshold. Even things like Embalm come to mind. You just uh, Unearth is another one. There, there's plenty of mechanics that effectively use the graveyard, and because of the prevalence of many of those, you're often incentivized not to make this block here. Right. So then the the question becomes like, well, if you're just never going to trade with their things, like how are you going to go about winning this game? And certainly that's tricky, right? And I think you get to dance around it uh, for the first few turns and then you just, you know, make a few trades on turns where like they're bottlenecked on mana maybe and, and stuff like that. Like you find ways to exploit them rather than just doing exactly what your opponent wants you to do. Yeah, but something like Delve, it's real interesting, right? Because the mana discount becomes less relevant as the game goes on and they have access to more mana. And I think that was one of the really interesting push-pulls of that format. Yeah, that's definitely true. And, you know, not something that that comes up very often and hopefully Delve doesn't come up ever again. But yeah, probably not. Uh, <laughs> I mean, we'll see. There'll be some other weirdo Delve card. But definitely all things to consider. You know, sometimes when you're playing against things like Boros, 
They don't have mind rot stuff. They don't have gravedigger stuff. They don't have delve stuff. It's not a thing that you necessarily have to consider. So that's certainly good. And a lot of this is informed by, you know, things that you've seen already, things that are true about the format, how often people main deck things like raise dead or like any sort of macabre waltz type of thing where, Mm. you know, maybe they get value from there being two creatures in the graveyard, but not from one. So you can trade with one thing if it's convenient for you, but don't trade with a second thing. You know, all of these things are contextual. And I'm going to say that a million more times before this cast is done. That's fine. I think I think that's the point of this cast is that there's plenty of context to consider in all situations, even the most simple situations. Last question I want to ask about the format at large, and don't think for a second that this is supposed to represent an exhaustive list. I can tell by how much time we've spent on just this part already that I probably made this list a bit too long, but it could be a lot longer for sure. Yes. There's so many things to consider. The last point I want to talk about was, are there the standard number of planeswalkers in the format? I think on the heels of War of the Spark, this is a very pertinent question. I don't know if we'll ever see anything like that again, but the presence of planeswalkers in that format certainly would change the math on this decision quite a bit. Yeah, War of the Spark Limited was basically just like, I don't I don't want to block because I might need my thing to attack your planeswalker or I might need this 2-2 to team up with another 2-2 later to block your 3-3 or whatever. Like, just having a, a a piece of cardboard on the battlefield was way more valuable than just trading off a 2-2 and preventing, like, two or four points of damage because it, the format often came down to Planeswalkers. And while we might not be in, like, War of the Sparkland very often, M20 has shown us that, you know, like, uncommon random Chandra is completely fine and something that they might do at some point. So... You always need to be cognizant of that. And really all of it comes down to is like, what is the value of your 2-2? And, or, you know, at least the value of your 2-2 compared to theirs, whatever. In formats like War, the, the creature mattered as a thing that could attack Planeswalkers or block to prevent your Planeswalkers from dying. And if you have no Planeswalkers in your deck, you know, maybe you don't need to care about blocking very much. But, you know, your opponent is almost always going to have theirs, so you still need to care about what they're doing, not necessarily what's just going on with your deck. Spot on. Uh, I want to tighten the scope a little bit now, and I want to talk about the individual game plan of your deck in this scenario. This isn't about what the format does as a whole. This is about what your goals are in the game. And I think many of these will often be reflective of where the format at large falls on the spectrum. Are you looking to leverage your graveyard? Can you upgrade a creature via combat trick? Because there are good ones later on. Uh, Are there a lot of sacrifice outlets in the format? I think all of those are questions which are about the format at large and about what your deck is doing in the context of that format. That's asking, can you leverage this creature in some unorthodox fashion later on? But I want to get into some specific things about individual decks that don't necessarily take consideration of the broader format. And this is a tricky, tricky question. And I think you will do a really nice job talking through this, Jerry. Does blocking and trading disguise anything about your hand, which may later be useful? Okay. (laughs) So I guess I should start by saying that every single action that you or your opponent take gives away some information to some degree. And obviously you can use that information. You can try and use that information to misdirect your opponent a little bit. 
if you if you're the one attacking with your two two, and you want them to take it because you're going to play a three three, you would probably not play your three three first, right? Because that tells them that their two two is going to be brick walled and everything. But you could also use that to potentially disguise things where like you play the three, three, then you attack with the two, two, they know that their two, two is not going to do anything. So they, they want to block it and trade. And then your only turn four play was a grave digger. So you effectively trick them into blocking. You killed their two, two for free. You got to play your four mana thing. And all of that seems good. And all of that was done because of a little bit of misdirection by playing the three, three pre-combat. So I, as far as like, Blocking and trading to disguise something about your hand, which may be later useful. I'm not sure. Okay, let me give you let me give you an example. Just a really quick one off the top of my head. There's a powerful defensive combat trick. I don't know exactly what this looks like, but Uh, so like dub instant play on a blocking creature plus seven plus seven, like that sort of thing. Sure. I mean, it could be something like that. Let's make it a cantrip too. So you really get a lot of value out of it in a scenario where you're blocking and trading. So this and might be this might be a bad example because I would not want to use that card to kill a 2-2 because it's still going to get value later on. Okay. So it's got to be smaller. So it's got to be like plus one, plus one, play only on a blocking creature, and then it's a cantrip. That's actually a more realistic card anyway. Yeah, it's, it's way too wordy, but whatever. Sure, sure. But- you could see a lot of spots where you would just clean up this 2-2 with the plus one, plus one, still have your creature on the battlefield. There's scenarios that it implies you may not have a combat trick because you're so willing to trade in this spot. And I think trades in general point to a lack of combat tricks because you cannot leverage a combat trick without access to a creature, right? Well, it depends. It depends because if if you attack an eye block, you can say this might mean that they don't have a combat trick, but it mm-hmm. also might mean that I'm going to curve out three, four, five, and I don't have time to actually like, you know, spend mana on this combat trick. Or I think that okay. the combat trick later with my four drop is going to be more valuable against your four drop rather than your two, two. Yeah. I think it makes that statement as well. So um, basically you can infer a, a, what a lot of things might mean, but you can't, necessarily narrow it down to this is exactly what that means and i think it's dangerous to go down that rabbit hole but yeah i I think like you attack i block you make some mental note of that and then when it when it comes time to actually make a decision about whether or not i have that trick you decide how likely it is based on my previous actions but it is still possible that i decided to value the trick higher than the creature You see why this is so challenging, right? Because we're making so many assumptions about our opponent in this scenario where there's just as reasonable explanations that have nothing to do whatsoever with anything in their hand. It could, it could be about broader format considerations. It could be about their ability to leverage creatures into the late game. All the things we've talked about up into this point can play into this point. And that's why you have to be careful about checking your narratives in any game and make sure you're always refreshing those narratives. The assumption that opponent has X. And I actually did this to myself uh, when I was playing fandom last week, my opponent kept a, as vampires kept a seven that was very slow and really just like not on the battlefield whatsoever in the early turns. And I'm thinking in the scape shift matchup, uh, this was in a post-board game. I was like, okay, there's no chance opponent keeps this hand unless they have Ashiok 
or Legion's End. They feel like they can compete with a longer scape shift game. So that's the only reason they would keep in this scenario. And the game plays out. Opponent eventually goes hellbent, and they had neither of those cards. And at some point, I was able to check back in with my assumptions. And I, I think my assumption was reasonable. I think it makes sense, given what I value in the matchup. But opponent obviously saw the matchup a different way, made some other assumptions, and kept a hand that didn't fit with my expected range. And so a lot of my assumptions started to break down. And I think that's very similar to what we're talking about here. Right. And so your your opponent made a choice to keep that hand, barring any misclicks. I assume that that was not the case, but that is certainly a thing that you can add to the list of possibilities. But sure. they, probably, they probably looked at a hand and was like, yeah, this is lands and spells. I'll keep it. Maybe they were unfamiliar with standard, unfamiliar with the matchup. Maybe they had different experiences in the matchup. There are a lot of things that can inform someone's decision, even including like, I have four land and three spells. Let's go, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, I remember this happening to me. Uh, I think I was 10-0 at a GP in Orlando playing against Paulo in the Delver Mirror. And the way the game played out for the first four turns, I was so confused because like my draw was pretty good and his draw was completely rancid. And I was just like, why would he keep that hand? And I had to start looking for reasons why he would keep it because otherwise it didn't make any sense. And it was like, oh, maybe he thinks that like equipment is so good. And he had like, you know, one of his few copies of divine offering or whatever. And, you know, I tried to like check in with that and just be like, is, is this literally the only thing that it could be because it's Paulo, you know, like I just imagined I, that he wouldn't keep like a five land ponder snapcaster hand or whatever. Mm -hmm. It turns out that's basically what he kept. And I, you know, I was just like racking my brain trying to figure it out. You just kept a bad hand. Like it's just a, a thing that people do. And did, did you talk with him afterwards? Does he, did, did he have different assumptions about the way the matchup played out than you did or what informed his keep in that scenario? I didn't ask him. I was like too mad that I lost when like basically on my turn five, I could have just played sword, equip it on Geist and he was drawing dead. But I played sword. He let it resolve. And I was like, oh, and like he had a snapcaster and two mana open. So I was like, oh, well, he's got to just have divine offering. Right. So I can't. Mm. I can't equip the Geist and attack, so I like did something else. Maybe I Snapcaster gutshotted his Snapcaster or something and then attacked, which was also bad because then he just flashed in Snapcaster, ate my Geist, and I should have just like attacked with Geist and then when he blocked Snap Gutshot just to make sure that the Geist stayed around for a turn because he's not going to double block with two Snapcasters, mm-hmm. right? Sure. You know, so like I, I basically like made this poor assumption on faulty logic, messed up the game, and if I was just playing against like random person, I, I probably would have won very easily. But instead, I just like tricked myself into losing and I was just like mad and walked away, you know, so I wasn't like, oh, hey, could you inform me about this thing? Because I was just like, God, I'm so stupid. Yeah, this this plays into it, too. Right. And I'm, I'm glad you said that the level of your opponent 100 percent is informing all of this stuff. But the truth is we don't always know the level of our opponent. And I think there's two big buffs. I think you get a huge buff when your opponent thinks you're an incredibly gifted player, like the scenario you just described against Paulo. And I think you get a huge buff when your opponent thinks you're an idiot. And that's the buff I leveraged for like a decade. Because if you've ever seen me play magic, it's physically difficult for me to hold my magic cards. I look like a complete buffoon and I've never played a game of magic in my life while I'm playing. And 
before more people knew who I was, they just assumed, okay, well, this idiot doesn't know what's going on. And I often leveraged that in my favor. And I, I think that's something that you have to be aware of. You have to worry about your opponent thinking how you're assessing their level. And now that I've kind of moved to the other side of the spectrum where some people do know who I am and they're, I, I, I don't know, some people think I actually know what I'm doing. I can find myself making more aggressive plays where they would be like, oh, this person would never do this in this scenario because they're not going to expose themselves to this. Therefore, they must have this. Basically, exactly what you described with Paula. Yeah. Sorry for ruining that for you. I hope you learn how to play from this side, though. I'm I'm just done for. There's no way I'm ever going to figure it out <laughs> and actually be good. That's fine, though. I enjoy what I do. So it, it all works out. Other questions under our game plan. Again, we talked about this in the format at large. Do you want the game to end early or late? That's certainly informing your decision whether you're going to block here. If you want to go late, you make the block every time. This wrinkle, I think, is a little bit different. And the question I have is, are you capable of leveraging early damage? And then the big point to this question, is it critical for you to do so? You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so if if you are very good at dealing like the last 10 points of damage, you know, you have like some lava axes, maybe, I don't know, what what was the dragon that like attacked them and then shuffled into your deck or whatever, you know, like that, that sort of thing. Sure. Like, Any big hasty threat. Yeah. But you don't have, you know, 15 flyers in your deck. You don't have these consistent uh, sources of damage. Maybe you have something like a, a plus seven, plus seven and trample spell or whatever. And you need to get in those early points of damage in order for those cards to do anything, then yeah, I would say that it is critical that you do not block because this 2-2 needs to get in there at some point. Yeah, the clearest example is just reach burn spells. Uh, There's been a few limited formats where you could find yourself with a bunch of reach uh, and it necessitated you playing super aggressive in those early turns. And in those scenarios, you're certainly passing on the black block here with the hope that your 2-2 is going to be able to get in for tiny bit of damage just enough to get you over the hump yeah i mean there there are also other scenarios where your ways to actually get in for damage involve you having the tutu where like you have creature or equipment or something and again it all circles back to like you know what is the value of this tutu for you and if your deck necessitates that you get in those points of damage somehow like your deck has to get scrappy and it could just be you know, maybe maybe your deck isn't isn't even necessarily like that, but like your opponent just has you dominated as far as mm-hmm. like you know the late game is concerned, and you recognize that going into game three, and now your game plan has shifted. You've sideboarded a little bit differently to try and make that game plan a little bit stronger. Maybe sided out some of your top end or whatever. Like all of these things come into play. Quality of your opponent's deck certainly belongs somewhere in this discussion, and I. I have such a great example for it. And it's it's the game I always go to. It's my favorite game I ever played on camera. It's against Kentaro Yamamoto at Pro Tour Magic Origins. His deck was absurd. He had two Pia and Kirin Nalars in his deck. I knew I was completely dominated. We were headed into game three. 
uh, and I have to take this incredibly, incredibly aggressive line where I waste a pump spell to make a block to prevent him from getting lifelink on a particular turn because I know I just need to get in damage. And if he finds any life gain, I'm not going to have the resources to end the game because he'll play Pia and Kieran Nalar and eventually take over in that fashion. And it looks ridiculous at the time. And the commentators are kind of dumbfounded. And it turns out to be exactly the correct play to win the game. If you're not considering your opponent's worth versus your deck's worth, then you're just not going to have access to plays like that. And you're never going to take those chances where you're like, this is how I can possibly win this game. Yeah, I mean, situations like that are, in my mind, what separates good from great. Like, you can try and play those games straight up where you are just at a huge deficit, but you're almost certainly not going to win, you know, like if, if you just played the normal way and utilize your cards, the normal way against your opponents, vastly superior deck, you're maybe like 20% to win, you know, like you're, mm-hmm. you're just hoping they get mana screwed. Don't draw two mountains. Maybe don't draw P and Kieran, whatever. But yeah, for, for the most part, you, as things line up currently, you are slated to lose. So how do you break that paradigm? Yeah. And this this starts here. It starts with this decision whether you're going to block this 2-2 or not. All of that comes into play. Let's touch on the specific creatures involved. Obviously, there's not a lot to unpack here because we're presenting this scenario with vanilla 2-2s, basically. But there's a little something we can think about. The first question I wanted to bring up is what colors are the creatures? Blue. They're both blue. No. Oh, okay. Uh- so we're done with that question. Next. <laughs> Color matters sometimes. Uh, I, I mean, the the next the next question I know is tribal synergies, and like that matters too. Maybe tribal stuff is only in a certain color. I mean, there there are also certain colors like white uh, and green that have like global pump effects. And you know, we talk about trying to like leverage our overruns and stuff. Like, what if they have a bunch of inspired charges and stuff, uh, sure. or might of the masses type things that get bonuses the more creatures they have on the battlefield you know like the these are things that you have to consider too yeah i think i wanted to point this out just because this is the most devoid of information thing in the entire equation right these are just boring two two creatures and even still under that scenario there's something we can look at to take away exactly what our opponent is going to be able to do with that creature in the future so I mean, all of this stuff, when you think about losing games and you saying there's nothing you could have done, well, did you consider all this stuff when you made your decision whether to block on turn two? Because if you didn't, if you didn't think through it all, maybe there was something else you could have done to win the game. Can I, can I rant about that a little bit? Sure. The whole, rant the away. whole, the whole there's nothing I could have done. Let's hear it. So many times people were like, well, yeah, once I got into that situation, there was nothing I could have done. And it's like, okay, that's fair, but if your draft went poorly and you realize where you made mistakes, or maybe you undervalued a card and that's why your draft went poorly, or you just weren't very well practiced, you didn't know that like you needed to draft your deck in this sort of way or whatever, like you didn't know how you should sideboard because of lack of preparation or whatever, all these things matter. Don't ever say there's nothing you could have done because clearly there are multiple things you could have done. Yeah, nothing I could have done is a huge red flag for me. Every time I hear it, I'm like, uh, I don't know if you're, you've got the mindset right for this game right now. Have you read Saga? No. Oh, the comic book you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not up to date, but I've, I've read a good amount of it. Okay. You know Lion Cat? 
Yes. All the, the cat only says lying. Yeah. That's it. This this is a lying situation. <laughs> yes. I just I need a lying cat for <laughs> for th- those scenarios, you know? Someone should make an app where it's just lying cat and you just hold it up at the person telling you this story. Was, I, I should it. just make it my phone background. That's what I should do. It's a good idea. Okay, let's get into some more things we can consider here. And this is a section I'm calling circumstances prior to deployment. And as we've painted this game, there's nothing else that's happened. There's two tutus on the battlefield. That's all players have done up until this point. So you might say, well, there are no circumstances prior to deployment. We've just gotten to this point. I don't think that's true. And it starts with the question, did the opponent do anything prior to attacking? And if the answer to that question is no, that still implies something, right? Yeah, I mean, it also depends on, you know, kind of how they were going through things. Like if they draw and immediately attack you, it's like normally when a player goes into turn three, they have to think about maybe what land to play, what they're going to do for the turn, whether they should attack or not. And if they just draw and they have an easy decision to attack you, that certainly means some stuff too. You know, it's, it's very rare that someone is going to like miss their land drop, not cast a card, but just attack you. Right. So you can probably cross that off the list. Yeah. I think there's, there's multiple things to unpack from their behavior prior to the attack step. Even when nothing's happening, it, at the very least, it points to the fact that they don't have a three mana combat trick, right? Like that's pretty clear on its face, or at least they don't want to portray they have a three mana combat trick, which is equally as important to consider. So it's it's a very subtle thing. Almost nothing has happened, but there's still a little bit of consideration you want to make there. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, there there are also, I mean, there, there are some combat tricks where it's like Briarhorn or whatever, mm-hmm. where it's like, if, if they make a conscious effort to play their land, like their fourth land before attacking because they want to represent it, and then on a later point in the game or the match, they don't make a conscious effort to do that when they've already shown that they are capable of doing that, you, you got to know that it's possible that it's a trap. Like they don't want mm. to make it seem obvious that they have it because it means that they do. That's a really nice one that we don't mention at any point in our our notes here. Previous play patterns certainly inform a lot of decisions here. Are they doing anything differently than they did last time they made this attack? I think is the cleanest way to say that. Yeah, I Uh, mean, so say this is game three and in game one, the exact same scenario happened. They drew, they immediately attacked you and then they played a three mana three, three, right? And then in game two, the same scenario happens and they they drew on turn three, thought about it for a little bit, played a land and said go. And then in game three, they draw, immediately attack you again. It's like, well, you can be pretty sure that something pretty similar is going on, right? I think so. I think that's a reasonable assumption. Of course, we can beat up any assumption by saying, well, what if they know that they did it this way last time? What if very they know few people... that you know that they know that you, right. yeah, you go very deep down the leveling hole and... Very That's, few people are keeping track of things that minute. I'll say that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that anyone really tries to play the other person on level two. I will say that. I don't know if I want to go that far. I think it's ultra rare. Ultra rare. That's what I'll say. Fair. I mean, it, it is 
it is less than 5%. I think it oh, yeah. very, very rarely comes up. And, and a lot of it has to do with like hubris, basically, where it's like, you know, I know that they know that I know. So therefore, I'm going to do this. And it's like right. most people are just like, I'm just going to play my opponent because, <laughs> you know, I'm better than them and they're probably not thinking about it. So sure. I think that happens all the time. This next point, I, I really love this one. And I'm looking forward to seeing what you make out of it. Did they play a tapped land on turn one? What do you think about that question, Jerry? Do you mean like tapped land, like dual land? Mm-hmm. Just a land that enters the battlefield tapped. Was it was that a yes or a no to dual land? Is it a multicolored land? Do they have multiple colors of mana? Well, I think you can consider both these points, right? I think there's there's the just plain tapped land, and then there's the dual tapped land and they kind of mean different things. I think the plain tapped land tells you very little, but in this scenario, we should probably unpack the dual land. I think that's well, more apt to say something. Say, say they play like a sap seep forest or something, just like a land that ETBs tapped that taps for a green and you can pay mana and tap it to like gain some life or whatever. Like that, that alone tells you a little bit about their deck building, right? It does. It's like, yeah, it's like that's not a that's not a super aggressive card. Like, yeah, you might be able to win that to or use that to win some races, but like, if I'm focused on aggression, uh, there's no way in hell that I'm playing that card over just a basic forest because I might draw that instead of land four when I need to play a four drop. So, mm-hmm. uh, you can make some assumptions certainly about what is in your opponent's deck and how your opponent's deck is constructed and what their plan is based on that. Uh, if they play like Foul Orchard into Forest into Grizzly Bear, then it's like, well, I mean, basically everyone is going to play like a two-color duel in their two-color deck. Uh, I, I don't think, you know, there's certainly a cap on the amount of them that you would play. Uh, I think Paulo has gone on record as saying that like Evolving Wilds is unplayable. So that's that's certainly a thing. But if they go like Arcane Sanctum into Island or Mountain or something like like or either three or four colors, it's like, yeah, their deck is probably pretty powerful. And maybe they're going to have mana issues at some point. I think those are the two takeaways I really wanted to get at. There's also the scenario where it's just like Foul Orchard Mountain as well. So they're representing three colors of mana. All yeah. of these things suggest a more powerful, potentially slower approach to the game. And I think you can use that tap land to inform your decision to some extent. Well, a lot of the time they're splashing for removal or some sort of card advantage or some bomb. And there are certainly some formats where you can figure out, you know, what the range of those cards is down to like five cards or less. Right. So if their deck is willing to splash removal, it is, you know, probably a little bit on the slower, maybe more controlling side or... At the very least, they realize that their mana is probably going to be a little bit bad and they're going to build their deck a little more controlling to splash for power rather than try and be aggressive. Because like you're, you're not going to splash some random removal spell in your aggro deck, at least if it's not quote unquote free, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. Next question. Mulligans. This is a big one. And I don't think it's one that people go back to enough. I don't know if you, Jerry, are someone who denotes your opponent's mulligans on your square pad. I see some people do that. I think it's a nice habit. Me personally, it is just something I track and think about as the game goes on. uh, And it does inform my decisions for sure. Well, I do on a boogie board 
mm-hmm. then I just erase it after every game. So it's not like I'm tracking it over the course of a tournament to figure out how unlucky I am. Sure. But I, I mostly do it so that if there's ever a judge call or whatever, like I have it marked, you know, Same. like I have I have paper proof or not paper, but uh, written proof that this thing occurred. But yeah, certainly when if your opponent mulligans to five and then attacks you with a two two, it's like, well, you're up two cards, three if you're on the draw. If you just trade here, your opponent has to do like some really busted stuff in order for them to actually be even remotely in this game because uh, they just don't have a lot of resources to work with. And hopefully there's a way that you can capitalize on that. So, you know, it, it does matter for informing how you should play the game. Right. And, you know, if, if they mulligan and are likely going to play a follow up and you have a mind rot or whatever, it's like I'm, I'm snapping off that block. Yeah, 100 percent. Any mulligans on a, the opponent's side in the scenario are pushing me in favor of blocking. A lot of very specific stuff would have to be going on in order for me to want to race with an opponent who is mold to five. Right. Yeah, that's a weird format. One that I probably don't want to participate in. It's called Zendikar. Yeah, maybe. Um, All right. So here's the last of the things I want to consider. And like I said, nowhere near an exhaustive list, but I have this as the last group of things we're going to talk about for a reason, because I think it's the least important out of all these categories. And I think it's one that players place way too much emphasis on and it's opponent's demeanor. And the soul reads, thinking about how they behaved and using that to know exactly what's going on. Uh, Things like how quickly did they make an attack? Did they consider other options prior to making the attack? Was there any information they weren't obligated to share with you? Jerry, you mentioned the situation where you play the pre-combat 3-3. What does that mean? Why would they do that? Maybe they're bad. That's always a possibility. Maybe they just don't understand that they're giving away information by doing so. That can come into play. But also, if someone who has shown a general knowledge of strategic considerations is making that type of play, you have to think about what that means for you. Yeah, but they probably assume that you won't because they did it. Otherwise, they won't do it. No, uh, I got I got a lot of stuff to say. Yeah, so anytime someone takes an action, makes a play, whatever, they are giving away information Uh, whether they intend to or not. So if you draw, and this kind of tilts me because I I think it's just technically wrong, even though it very rarely affects the outcome of the game, but it's like, say you're playing Esper Hero, right? You go Shockland into uh, like Glacial Fortress or whatever, you play a two drop, you draw, you immediately play like a Drowned Catacomb, and then you tank for a while and figure out what you're going to do. I really don't like that because it, gives away information to the opponent because like if, if you were considering between playing a thought erasure or a Teferi or whatever, you would not immediately just play the untapped land because you might have a shock land to go with your thought erasure to not take two on the next turn. Right? So like you are voluntarily giving your opponent some amount of information. Yes, it is likely not information that they will be able to use to some degree. And I, I think magic had this, a lot more back in the day with things like cabal therapy or whatever. Like now it's like, yeah, thought erasure. You just look at their hand, choose a card and you don't have to think too much about what your opponent could be holding or whatever. So there's not a whole lot of that going on, but at the same time, it like it does give you a general sense of like what your opponent is trying to do and what sort of options they have. Like if 
they just play untapped land on turn three and then think for a while, play Teferi and bounce your thing. Like maybe they're deciding between Oath of Kaya or Teferi or Deputy. And at least like now you have, you know, they have options. You know that they have probably ways or a way to kill a follow-up creature or something. And like, you can exploit that a little bit. So what I like doing is drawing, thinking about everything that, that I'm going to do for the turn and then doing it, not like doing the things that I know that I'm going to do just to like check them off the list. Because I, I do think that it is strictly wrong almost. So you like to play in bursts is how I would describe that. Just think about all of your options, throw them onto the battlefield, do it at once. Yeah, basically. I mean, I, I, there's, there's no reason not to do that because especially if, if you're like, well, I'm definitely going to play one of these three drops and then you play your land and then you're like, ah, crap. I realize that I'm supposed to play a two drop instead. You know, now, now you, you just kind of made a little mistake because you just got a little ahead of yourself. You know, who does a great job playing in bursts and I've Me? noticed this. Okay. Well, you sure. We'll give you credit. <laughs> Hearthstone players. Almost every Hearthstone player plays exactly in that fashion when playing actual Hearthstone. The good but I've ones. Noticed, yeah, the good ones. I've noticed as players have come over to Magic too, though, they are bringing some of that play style to Magic as well. And you can understand why, I think, for exactly the reasons you said. Yeah. Well, Hearthstone, it's more of like a lot of things are going to happen per turn more often than in Magic. And sometimes it's like, you know, counting up lethal or... Uh, what happens if I make all of these different board trades and okay, if I trade like this, but I play this pump spell, like then what happens, you know, like you have so many more things to consider on any given Hearthstone turn, I think, but the the same stuff that can happen in Hearthstone that makes it a mistake could easily happen in magic too, where you're like, Oh, well, I'm definitely attacking this into this. And then you're like, well, okay, let's continue doing the math. Oh, I figured out if I pumps the thing that I attacked with, Previously, it would have been like a slightly better trade. Like that stuff happens all the time. Sure. Yeah, 100%. So that that would be my recommendation is just, you know, think about everything, then make your plays and not not go halfway. Don't make some of your plays, then think, then make some other plays. Because that generally doesn't work out great. But yeah, some of this falls under stuff that we talked about a segment or two ago where it's like, how quickly did they make an attack and certainly like how that plays into how they have previously done things. If you have a previous model sure. from them, like some people will just attack confidently every time, whether or not they have something. And just a, a lot of people, uh, I think Brad is one of those people who just plays confidently at all times because that is just like his table demeanor. That's what he does. And maybe you can tell something is a miss because last time he attacked quickly, this time he attacked a little bit more slowly, but uh, it could just be that he's making his decision faster this turn rather than that turn. Uh, but if, yeah, they, you know, drew thought for a long time, then attacked versus this turn, they attacked uh, very quickly. Obviously that's something to think about. You can't necessarily make a hundred percent of uh judgment there but it should certainly inform things at the very least you know that your opponent has options and in the situation where they play the land first i think it's just sloppy and a lot of people do it out of habit you know like you draw you play a land that is what people tell you when you first start playing magic and it's tough for people to to break that habit a lot of the time yeah we've got a lot of habits uh baked into the way we engage with the game for sure 
And we'd probably all benefit from taking a good run at those habits and figuring out ways we could introduce a little bit more efficiency and clarity into our games. You see, though, why all these things, like given everything we've discussed to this point, it's it's all ethereal in some sense. It's all very hard to pin down. It all requires you to make a lot of assumptions. But there's a lot more concreteness to what cards exist in the format, uh, what options are available to my opponent than, oh, I thought my opponent moved a little bit more quickly on this turn, so they must not have it. And I think people put such an emphasis on that one thing over these 10 million factors we've talked about up till this point. And this isn't to devalue that one thing entirely. It's just to say it belongs a little bit further down in your scale. And that was definitely a point I wanted to hit as we move through this discussion. Well, the the thing that attracts people to it is that it's it's sexier, I guess. It's flashy, yeah. It's yeah, absolutely like, flashy. You want to be able to say, like, I got the soul read on my opponent rather than just, like, I don't really pay attention to that stuff because who knows? Like, you know, maybe they, they were super excited to play Magic. They attacked you very quickly in game one. And then in game two, they were thinking about whether or not they left the stove on. You know, like, you have no idea why someone does what they do you just have to pick up on all of the various context clues that happen over the course of a game before you can actually make a reasonable decision. And even then, a lot of this will come down to making judgment calls. Like you're making well-informed judgment calls as best you can with the information that you have, but but that's it. And these, these calls can be wrong a lot of the time. And you mentioned this, and I talked about my match uh, with Paulo, where it's like I made this decision that the only way Paulo could have kept that hand is because of X, Y, and Z. And I was wrong, you know, like the information that you get can be incomplete or it could just be a thing that you weren't even considering. Absolutely. I, I hope that we've given you plenty to think about the next time you are faced with a two, two, I would love to hear even more things you think are worth considering. Feel free, free to tweet at me or hit us up in the Discord and just talk about this a little bit more. I think there's so many interesting things to unpack here. And each one is just another tool in your arsenal. None of them are ever going to answer the question on the whole, but they all inform you a little bit and let you make slightly more informed decisions. And if you start considering these things, I do think you'll see a difference in the effectiveness of your decision-making. Yeah, I think when, when I was at my height, I would be able to immediately snap off things that my opponents were doing, like they, they would tell me effectively, like what was in their hand, mm-hmm. you know, where it's like, oh, this immediately like tells me that they have this specific combat trick because of, you know, this is how the scenario went down or whatever. And now with limited specifically, like I can, I can tell that I'm a little bit rusty. I'm not as well practiced. I'm not as like honed in on the game because they do something and I'm like, all right, I know this means something, but I can't <laughs> but figure what? out what it is. Yeah, And so obviously like studying and getting the reps in also helps inform those decisions because your, your opponent can tell you something through their actions and you, you know, you can't get the right answer if you don't know all the, the possibilities, right? Absolutely. So like we said, let us know if you enjoyed this look 
at blocking the 2-2. I think there's more things along this same vein we could do. Uh, if you think this particular framework is really interesting and you want to see us explore other decisions, maybe like the diabolic edict stuff, maybe maybe this works with any question, honestly. Maybe you can just present everything and you can go down this rabbit hole and see what you can unpack. Maybe do you cast Thoughtseize on turn one or... You know, am I supposed to cast Lava Spike or Suspend Rift Bolt? Maybe all of this stuff is worth talking about every now and then. And if you would like us to do that, definitely holler at us. Let us know. Yeah, and kind of related, I am. I really like the what's the play screenshots. And I, I feel like there aren't nearly enough of them that go around. I think that's true. I think it's a very useful thing. I don't, I don't know why this is a very... Apollo focused episode this week, but uh, just started writing for Star City and I thought his Hogak opening hand breakdowns were super useful, uh, especially for me just learning the deck and the way he presented all that information was really good. More of that type of stuff would be great in the magic world. Like we said, there's a reason why we get away from it. And quite frankly, this discussion we just had, we talked about it earlier today. This is probably a better article than it is a podcast. But it's something we wanted to explore in this format and see if the information came across and it was useful to you folks. So we'll have to see if this is something that we get a little bit more of in the days to come. Yeah, like like Brian said, if, if y'all like this format, let us know. It will very much determine whether or not we do more stuff like this in the future. Absolutely. Well, that is the end of this week's episode, but we have to cap it off with a question from the fine folks of our discord. And we, we kind of talked about some of this stuff already, but Andrew W wants to know in celebration of the discord's newest professional writer, that would be yo man five, AKA Adam Hernandez. You, you should follow him on Twitter. If you haven't already watched him stream, uh, just got a job writing for TCG player. So definitely check out his content there, but uh, Andrew wants to know who are your favorite authors in magic and out. Well, now that we've plugged TCG player, I feel almost obligated to mention someone from our fine sponsor, StarCityGames.com, your number one home for all your magic, the gathering singles. But thankfully it's very easy to mention someone from there because PV writes for us now. And I, I think PV is just on another level. His average article quality is extremely high. And his highs are defining pieces. They are absolutely indispensable. He's one of those people who uh, makes me feel bad to write, quite frankly. I like He just offers so much more than I am able to. And he's also doing it in his second language, which is like freaking mind-blowing. I was going to... Dude, I was going to bring that up. Yeah, I, I can't even imagine. And I, I just think his work has been incredible, both on a week-to-week basis and a broader moving forward the strategic discourse level. I will always give props to Jadine, who unfortunately is no longer writing, but I always thought her articles were absolutely incredible. As far as non-magic authors, I've been struggling with this question lately because I don't know that there's like... I don't think I have a home-run author anymore. I just think there's like individual works I like quite a bit. I like a lot of Terry Pratchett's work. Who else? Neil Gaiman comes to mind. Like, but all of these authors have some lows, and I can't really put one book above another. And then one of my favorite books of all time is Naked Lunch by William S. Burroughs. And 
I wouldn't even say I'm a William S. Burroughs fan. So uh, I don't really know how to rank my favorite non-magic authors, but those are just a few that I really enjoy. Dude, Paulo makes me so mad. Yeah, agreed. Like, I think I have gotten to a point where I am one of the better magic writers, and I know that I can never be the literal best while Paulo is still writing. It's just completely absurd. His stuff is so good. Like you said, uh, his his average quality level is through the roof, right? And yeah, doing it in his second language, it just it makes me mad. I'm just like so upset. It, it certainly doesn't help that he like beats me every time we play, <laughs> and he's just like a nice, good dude too. It, it's just not fair, dude. None of it's fair. Yeah, I think I could live with the like great all-time articles because he's so good that obviously he's going to have genre-defining ideas. It makes perfect sense. But it's just that his week-to-week quality is so high that I can't even come to grasp with. Because quite frankly, and I think I've been very open about this, I would say 80% of the time I hate my article for a given week. Like I think there's something useful there. I think I'm conveying good information. But I want to write something like meaningful and really impactful and something that can carry forward to the future and isn't just a deck list. And I think a lot about the current state of magic content creation makes that difficult. And I also think doing that is just inherently difficult. Like that's a very high bar to present for yourself. But on on a week to week basis, I feel a lot of frustration and he just hits it out of the park every time. It's ridiculous. Yeah, before when he was writing for channels, like, all right, maybe I won't go to the site and I won't see his face every week. But now he's on Star City and I check Star City almost every day. Mm, it's just not brutalized. Fair. I hear you. You know, if, if there were people who had read Star City and not channel, they might be like, oh, that Jerry guy's pretty good at writing. And now it's just I'm, I'm living in a shadow. It's yeah, he's fun. very, very clearly uh, on the same platform as you. And he's able to shine beyond you right next to you yeah he's taking some of my spotlight but anyway this is a very long-winded and mean way of saying that paulo (laughs) is one of my favorite magic writers can you heap praise on someone in a mean fashion it's kind of it's kind of it's like a it's like a backhanded compliment kind of yeah maybe i don't i just i want to hate him but i can't in magic i mean like retail stuff was always really good uh i think it was the amsterdam report in mm-hmm. specific, uh, that was quite good. I mean, I also, I think that, uh, like Star City's average has gone up a lot. Like if, if you are, you know, grinding tournaments and stuff, I think that Star City is a very, very good resource and just, you know, I, I, I wouldn't say that there's like a bad author on the website. I agree. But outside of magic, I don't know. It's like, there are a lot of books that I like or stories that I like, but I wouldn't say that, you know, I, I particularly like the author for one reason or another, or that they are particularly gifted. Uh, I also just like don't feel like I am well versed enough in that stuff, despite kind of being a professional writer, to actually be able to critique them. You know, so it's like I, I can't say whether someone is like excellent or whatever, but I also can't say that, you know, they're bad. I can, but you can, sp- you can speak to your enjoyment of their work. I mean, I think that can define your favorite author. I was I was getting to it. Uh, the last the last thing that I read, and I I haven't had this experience in a while, 
But finishing uh, Mistborn by Brandon Sanderson just mm. made me so happy because everything was just tied up. It was just such like a neat, complete story. And, you know, a lot of the time you like finish a series or a book or whatever, and you're just like, well, what about this? What about this? Like, why was that part in the book or whatever? And it's like, nah, everything just like felt right in that series. I agree. I enjoyed Mistborn quite a bit as well. It's a, it's a little pulpy, but I mean that as a compliment. Like, it's just yeah. a, a light read that I really enjoyed. I need to read the next trilogy in the series. I'm looking at it. It's on my bookshelf. And I believe I read the first book, but haven't gotten further than that. I'm not even sure if the third book is out in the second trilogy, quite frankly. But I'll have to check that out and see. I don't know. That, that dude writes too many books. He does. He's got a lot of series going on. And, I mean, he's he's sort of like Paulo-esque, right? Where it's like he puts out a bunch of stuff and it's all pretty good. Yeah. So like I'm I'm slowly working my way through it now. But yeah, Miss Mistborn specifically, like it just made me happy to finish it. And it's like, you know, when was the last time I felt like this? You know, I just like couldn't remember. Normally it's like, you know, you finish something and you're like kind of satisfied, like you know how the story ends or whatever. But I was just genuinely happy when Mistborn was done. It's funny. I, I think it was, I, I mentioned the book first on either last week's podcast or the week before. Uh, and then I talked about it a bit in the Discord, but the first Law Trilogy by Joe Abercrombie was like what I thought to be an excellent book. And when I finished it, I was just like, I hate this book. I want to throw it across the room. And I, I was just so upset by the ending. Not to say it was the incorrect ending or there's anything wrong with it. Like it was very much the way this series probably should have ended, but it has spawned this hatred of grim dark, grim dark fantasy for me that I can't escape. <laughs> I think Mistborn is of a lighter genre, even though the stakes are there and it like, there is certainly seriousness to it. It doesn't read quite as dark as, you know, game of Thrones first law yeah. type stuff. I mean, it, it's also kind of weird. Cause it's like, you know, the characters have names like ham and stuff. So yeah. it's like, it's, it's pretty clearly like, you know, not trying to take itself super seriously or whatever. Sure. Uh, but, but when I, yeah, I started reading it. I'm just like, what the hell? Like I, I was told that Sanderson's a fantasy author. This is a heist novel. You know, <laughs> what, the, what the hell is going on? I'm just, I'm reading Ocean's Eleven or whatever. Well, the next, the next trilogy has like a steampunk ish feel to it is the best way I could describe it. Like it really is a little bit of genre bending. And then it has like a wild west detective ish vibe. Uh, yeah. It's really cool. I really enjoyed the first book and having this conversation makes me really want to get to the second book. Go on, get to reading, man. Don't let I me will. stop you. We'll do. We'll do. Yeah, I, I should read more and I should read more things by good authors, but yeah, I don't. Uh, maybe when you retire, you'll find the time to get some reading done. Yeah, maybe. Audiobooks are are wonderful, let me tell you. Haven't been able to do it yet, but I, sh- I should give it another shot. I don't think I gave it a fair shake. Well, it's it, it's very difficult to do fantasy in audiobooks because all the words are made up. Okay. So you kind of have to like read 30 pages or whatever and, you know, uh, just go from there. So you know how like the names are spelled and like what the places actually are and whatever. Because I, I started... Uh, Stormlight Archive on audio, and it took me so long to like actually get into it because it was just all nonsense. It was it was like I was listening to audio in a different language. 
That's interesting. And that's a very deep, unique world too. So I, I get where you're coming from. There's a lot of things that have to be explained about it. Also enjoyed that book quite a bit and not up to date on that either. Like maybe halfway through the second book. Okay. I just finished it, but it was like mostly on audiobook. Really need to do some more reading. Why don't I read anymore? What am I doing with my time and life? What's going on? I don't know, man. You run too much, maybe. Maybe that is it. But I could do audiobooks while I was running. Yeah. What the hell are you doing? You better be listening to some dope podcasts. I listen to The Adventure Zone while I run, which is essentially a fantasy novel in podcast form. So kind of getting my fix that way. Yeah, that counts. That's game. Good luck.